Part five of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper, Section Five. Passing from religion into the world of moral problems, I am especially anxious to make my real attitude, as it wavers and flickers, as clear as possible. It is here that one is especially tempted to make the best of one's little ways, and to round off with a show of consistency moods and impulses that are at bottom absolutely inconsistent. And yet, how interesting it were, if the most ordinary of human beings could be persuaded to analyse and set down with genuine unscrupulousness his real moral experiences. It was surely a matter of some psychological importance, perhaps even of some ethical importance, if a person could bring himself to state frankly where and at what points his own private conscience moves in agreement with the social conscience and where it deviates from it and pursues its own road i suppose that in the last resort i must be what they call a hedonist that suspicious sounding name which made pater wish that everybody knew greek i suppose that ultimately i pursue pleasure and pleasure alone as the chief end of my cults and activities the poignancy of the situation, as far as conscience is concerned, begins to assert itself for me at those points where my pleasure conflicts directly with the pleasure of other people. Until some point of this kind is reached, I am absolutely devoid of scruple. My line of thought and action may run dead contrary to the conscience of the community to which I belong, without my experiencing the least discomfort of soul. I may think and do things absolutely under the ban of the current ethical code, and my conscience will remain gay and unruffled. It will even feel a certain agreeable tickling of pleasant self-approbation. It is when my pursuit of pleasure crosses, with a direct impact, the instinct of self-preservation in others, that the pinch comes. I am, by disposition and taste, fatally aware of the existence of these other people, of these alien egoists in my path. It is as disagreeable to me to rend and maul them as it is to break the branches of delicate trees or to pull up the roots of sensitive flowers. An egoist myself, I know well how egoists suffer when their particular life illusion is interfered with, or their particular aesthetic vistas blocked up, and every man, woman or child I meet is an egoist for me. I suspect them all of living ultimately for nothing but pleasure, even as I do. They may talk of duty and self-culture, and the service of humanity and the will of God. I seem to wave aside all that, and perceive under every mask the old eternal pressure of the life-lust. It causes me much inconvenience, this conscience of mine, many sacrifices, many wretched, unillumined hours. 
i sometimes hesitate on the brink of envying those thicker-skinned more impervious scoundrels who go ahead mercilessly and strike out for what they want even across the bodies of their friends but i never do really envy them i think i have an instinctive feeling that the same imperiousness in them which makes such indifference possible causes them to lose endless exquisite emotions of pleasure to which my less unruffled skin remains porous and sensitive thus i am one of those who would never be able unless under circumstances of intolerable aggravation to leave a tiresome friend or companion and lash out for liberty at every cost to cut difficult knots by quitting as my american moralist recommends is out of the question for me i must not claim too much virtue it is probably not merely my dislike of giving other people unpleasant shocks but my dislike of receiving them myself which restrains me i am naturally averse to any kind of drastic action in fact i dislike all action whether drastic or otherwise my atavistic reversion if we all do really have so quaint a thing is towards the passive rather than the predatory world i suppose my ideal existence out of the human circle would be that of some happy iridescent jellyfish expanding its sunlit body in placid warmth at the bottom of a rock pool hurting nothing and being hurt by nothing and living entirely for sensation apart from the jellyfish i find the life of a prairie bison a very desirable one lizards in the desert seem also enviable and there is much to be said to my thinking for the innocent role played in this life medley by the lichen upon an apple tree or the moss upon the roots of an elm this singular reluctance on my part to strike out and mould as they say my own life is connected i fancy with every one of my profoundest instincts i cannot endure the idea of giving people violent jerks and blows i cannot endure the effort the action the dealing with material difficulties that such movements require i long for things to change but to change things one has to have the energetic will-power of a demiurge and there is absolutely nothing demiurgic about me i like the sensation of being created i do not at all like the responsibility of creation i am always sceptical too about any change there are bound to be people and things wherever i go clamorous obtrusive and demanding some kind of response custom has made the things i am used to more easy to handle i have acquired the tricks of my own burrow and know how to avoid the barking dogs and the men with guns if i go forth into new fields the chances are that i shall encounter much more noisy invaders of my solitude what is called travelling always implies policemen inspectors custom-house officers and government officials it often implies bandits and brigands an individual with a nervous dislike of his fellow men were wise to remain at home i may go far in search of quietness and after all discover no path so unfrequented as the one i have learned to find the way to from my own back door i have acquired by long experience 
the art of moving among turnips and mangelwurzels? Why should I go stumbling forth to find cactus and deadly nightshade? My unwillingness to march forth to liberty over the bodies of people is further accounted for by a quaint fear I have that I may suddenly discover depths of affection and tenderness in me that I never suspected. One would feel a considerable fool if one sacrificed love to liberty only to find oneself in another kind of prison and love murdered at the gate. One never can tell. One cries aloud for freedom and strikes down this or that barrier only to fall into some devilish gin far more murderous than the last. To preserve the liberty of one's thought, that at least is something. While one can go aside in lonely places and mutter one's weariness of flesh and blood into the air of the elements, one's lot is not hopeless. Apart from my fear of unsuspected depths in my affections, I am prevented from deserting my post by a much less admirable quality. I have, to confess the truth, an absurd desire to be regarded with fondness and complacency, if not with respect. To be considered a hard-hearted ruffian by parent or wife or child would be extremely disagreeable to me. One curious and most fortunate gift I owe to my good genius. I have absolutely no pining for what is called spiritual affinity. I have not the least objection to living with people of divergent or even opposite tastes. In the abstract, I cannot even regard such affinity as a thing to be desired. It presents itself to me as a spiritual invasion, as a rushing in of alien waters into my sequestered harbour, as something troublesome, exacting and confusing. I like being myself and going my own way, and I like my companions to do the same. Such contrarieties afford an opportunity for me to indulge my predilection for irony, for psychological analysis and for living a double life. I despise people who must always be receiving sympathetic assent to their ideas. I do not want sympathy. I want kindness, fondness and affection. All that I have just said applies to my habitual feeling about spiritual affinity in the abstract. As a matter of fact, in one single human case, I have had the good fortune to know the pleasure of such an affinity in actual experience. In this case, I did not ask for it, or seek for it. It just occurred. And I am bound to confess, at the risk of being held inconsistent, that it has turned out one of the great felicities of my life. Is it necessary for me to add that this startling interrupter of my method, this bold subverter of my abstract theories, is one of my own sex? No. With regard to matters of conscience, I am extraordinarily unwilling to override my friends, or cause them shocks or inconveniences. I continually go out of my way and worry myself with teasing burdens for their sakes. I sacrifice the main object of my life to them. That is to say, my pleasure. And I land myself in situations that necessitate what I detest above everything else. That is to say, action. Lest this should be regarded as a monstrous boast or virtue, I hasten to add that it only applies to little external things. In the larger issues of life, short of moulding great events and inaugurating new departures, I generally get what I want. And I get it, not by any elaborate Machiavellian schemes, but by a certain pliability of nature, 
which makes it possible for me to bend like a reed without ever breaking. My egoism has its own perfectly unconscious and instinctive arts, which reach the end by the most devious and unexpected paths. I am naturally much more sympathetic with the physical sufferings of people than with those of a moral kind. I always regard physical suffering as an outrage, as a scandalous anomaly, as an insult to the harmony and pleasantness of life. I am not one of those who think that we gain by suffering and become nobler. According to my experience, people lose by it and are hampered, stupefied, mutilated, distorted and embittered. In this matter of physical suffering, my conscience does not only work negatively, it works positively. It runs into very extreme excesses. It becomes what many people would call diseased. This is the cause, among others, why I can never bring myself to eat the flesh of oxen, sheep and pigs. It is not that I object to their being killed. It is that I dislike extremely the manner of their killing. If people went out into the pastures and gave these innocents pleasant little electric shocks that caused them to fall instantaneously dead in the midst of their browsing, I would eat them with avidity. The same thing applies to socialism. My conscience compels me to be a socialist, and I suppose I shall always be one, though none could dislike more than I the idea of being interfered with by a stupid set of moralistic bureaucrats. I have no prejudices in the matter of political freedom. I listen with humorous contempt to the inane chatter of democratic idealists. I would resign my political rights tomorrow with absolute equanimity if some great despotic commission of Kitcheners and Roosevelts could settle the matter of poverty once and for all and arrange that everybody should have the pleasures of life and be well fed, warm and contented. I prize liberty as much as any. In fact, liberty is the breath I must breathe. But I would willingly submit to serious curtailments of the invaluable thing if, by so doing, I could relieve my conscience at a stroke of this uncomfortable background of responsibility for the abominable miseries which we inflict on the poor. It is in things of this kind that my conscience pricks and plagues me. In other matters, where there is no question of giving people or animals direct discomfort, I have no conscience at all. In realms of comfort outside the question of causing suffering, I do exactly and precisely what I please, limited only by motives of expediency. This sounds wonderfully heroic and antinomian. In reality, I shrewdly suspect it is very much what everybody else does. For I notice that the human conscience is more alert in condemnation of others than punctilious in self-discrimination. And when one comes to examine into the matter, what an enormous mass of so-called moral restraint is purely an affair of expediency. Certain lapses, certain wanderings from the path, seem to us best avoided, not in the least because the current morality condemns them, but simply because, given the circumstances we are in, they would lead to troublesome situations and embarrassing complications. Take the virtue out of the world which is the result of pusillanimity and caution, and how much would be left? For myself, I can only pray that I shall always find it wise and expedient to be sweet-tempered, friendly, considerate, and amusing, 
rather than sour irritable heavy-handed gloomy and dull for in the last resort it is the happy and gracious people who make life tolerable and the sulky touchy ill-conditioned wretches who poison its pleasant hours at the same time i must confess i would prefer to spend my days with an irritable egoist who possessed genius even though he made life extremely inharmonious rather than with a cheerful fool who could do nothing but amiably chuckle this however is a matter of taste as a general rule then my conscience is quiet and flexible economic injustice the disgusting slaughter of animals brutality of parents towards children vivisection harshness to prisoners are the only things that really rouse and excite it though i am conscious of remorse when i inflict upon my friends the discomfort of my moods of animal depression or the moroseness of ill health end of part five